take your Bibles, please, this morning, the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to look actually at the whole book. Uh, I had hoped and planned and prayed to preach through the whole book in one go this morning, but as I was working towards the end of it last night, I realized there's just no way, there's too much, and I don't want to miss uh, some good stuff to just get through it quickly. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on uh, the four verses of chapter 2 when we get there, and then next Sunday evening, I'm going to look at chapter 3 and finish it off because there's some rich stuff there. I sent out a verse uh, to you all, if you get the little verses on your phone, of Habakkuk 3 and that great passage, and I do want to get there, and we'll do that next Sunday in the evening service. There is a Sunday school. Sorry, I forgot to send the kids away to classes, and you can do that now if you want to go. <laughs> Let's read Habakkuk chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 4, yes. And Habakkuk says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the watchtower, and I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and how I may reply when I am reprimanded. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write down the vision and inscribe it clearly on tablets so the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hurries towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it delays, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay long. Behold, as for the impudent one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays... Sorry, we'll leave it there. The righteous one will live by his faith. We'll trust God will add blessing to the reading of his word. My apologies. Let's pray again, shall we? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, again, as we... Stand before your open word. And Father, we would, our desire this morning is to hear what you would say to each one of us. And Father, we pray that you would speak and that we would have hearts to hear. Father, again, we pray for boldness to speak the truth, for grace to season the words that are spoken. Father, for love to be the only motive in preaching. Father, we pray for the Spirit to open hearts and minds to hear and respond. Father, we pray for those who are here this morning that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, that you would save the lost. Father, I pray that you would edify the saints and encourage those who are downcast and discouraged. Father, we pray for the consolation of those who are grieving, the comfort for the afflicted. And Father, we pray also for the affliction of the comfortable. Lord, we ask you all these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So what was going on that moved Habakkuk to write his little three-chapter oracle? 2 Kings 21 tells us that wicked kings Manasseh and then Ammon had led the nation of Judah deeper into spiritual bankruptcy than ever before. Ammon's son was the godly Josiah who reigned from 640 to 609 BC. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, not turning aside to the right or the left, And he brought some short-lived reforms and revivals to Judah. He restored the temple in 2 Kings 22. He reinstituted the Passover feast in 2 Kings 23. And chapter 23 and verse 25 of 2 Kings says that before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, his soul, and might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him 
arise after him. It was during Josiah's reign that Assyria, that the current world power, had declined in power. The Chaldeans had destroyed Nineveh in 612 BC and then decisively defeated the Assyrians at Carchemish, a battle in 605 BC. They were no longer to be considered God's rod of discipline, but he would certainly raise another one. Despite Josiah's efforts, widespread ungodliness prevailed amongst the people of Judah. And in 609 BC, Josiah fought against the Egyptians and he was killed at a place called Megiddo. And so two of Josiah's sons succeeded him as king after him. First of all, the ungodly Jehoahaz, who was imprisoned by Pharaoh Necho at Riblah. And secondly, the ungodly Eliakim, also the son of Josiah, whose name was changed to Jehoiakim and who also did much evil in God's sight. So much so that the writer of 2 Kings says in 23 verses 26 to 27 that the Lord did not turn aside from the fierceness of of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I've removed Israel and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I've chosen and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. That's what God promised about the people of Judah. So who was Habakkuk? He was a contemporary of Zephaniah and Jeremiah, possibly living as long as Ezekiel and Daniel. He was a prophet of God, but he's only ever mentioned in his own book and only twice. Habakkuk's oracle was likely, some doubts, some questions, written between 640 and 626 BC during the reigns of either Josiah or Jehoiakim, but he was certainly written before the Chaldeans invaded in 605. And Habakkuk begins by complaining that God is not hearing or saving his godly and oppressed people from the ungodly and violent Judahites and all that they're doing. And God responds, He is about to bring Chaldeans against all Judah in his judgment for centuries of ongoing sin and ungodliness and idolatry. So Habakkuk again complains that this injustice is too much for God's holy eyes to see. And God responds that he will judge all the wicked, including the Chaldeans, but he will save the righteous one who lives by faith in him. And so Habakkuk finishes his oracle in chapter 3 with a profound hymn of praise. It's one of the most beautiful expressions of what faith in God is really all about. And I encourage you to come next Sunday night as we look at it. So why do we need the message of the oracle of Habakkuk in our day? Because Habakkuk literally could have been written yesterday. The parallels between Habakkuk's world and our own are striking. Habakkuk is a picture of the faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-living believers of today. Judah is a picture of the wider, declining, and unfaithful Western church. And the Chaldeans picture the ungodly governments and cultures of our day and their growing intolerance and increasing persecution of the whole church. But here's the great message. Our God is unchanging in his faithfulness to himself, his word, and his people. God kept his promise to Habakkuk to bring judgment on Judah and the 
Judah with the Chaldeans. And he also brought judgment on the Chaldeans themselves. By the way, time out. My Bible uses the word Chaldeans. Your Bible might use the word Babylonians or Babylon. Okay, exactly the same people. Just two different ways, two different words to describe the same thing. In case you wonder what in the world I'm talking about when I mention Chaldea and your Bible doesn't say that. That's, they're the same thing. God will keep his promises. And that's the basis of our Christian faith, is it not? That our God is faithful. He always keeps his word and his promises. Just as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 17 to 19, he says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So the two questions lie before us as we consider Habakkuk's timely oracle. Will we, like Habakkuk, learn to trust the Lord despite our circumstances, despite what we can see? even though he's bringing discipline on the church for its departure from the faith. And secondly, how will we respond to Habakkuk's central and most well-known verse, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous one by his faith will live. So first of all, Habakkuk's first complaint. And basically what he says is, why don't you hear my prayers? And we see that in chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. In verse 2, Habakkuk begins with the lament. How long, O Lord, I have called, but you do not hear. I cry out to you, but you do not save. In verse 3, Habakkuk then lays before the Lord his reasons for his cry of lament. Injustice prevails amongst God's people. Consider the list that's given there. There's disaster and destitution and devastation and violence and strife and contentions. What's happening is the ungodly Judahites in his time, continuing in pagan idolatry, are bringing great trouble on those godly, faithful to the Lord Judahites. Verse 4, Habakkuk gives the conclusion of the situation. These injustices result in God's law being ignored and not upheld. His explanation is that the wicked surround the righteous, so what justice there is comes out confused. Habakkuk's complaint is that the ungodly, unfaithful Judahites, uh, unfaithful to the Lord, their covenant God, are surrounding and mistreating the godly and faithful Judahites. So there's violence unchecked, destitution among the people, strife and contentions. But what's interesting is, he says, the law of God is being ignored and not upheld. And we can see the same thing in our day, can't we? As churches turn continuously and further away from the biblical truth of the gospel, we see the word of God is not being preached and upheld and lived and taught the way it should be. We can learn much. It seemed to Habakkuk, if it wasn't bad enough that all those things were happening, it it seemed worse to him that the Lord seemed to be neither hearing nor saving them. Surely the Lord would want to deliver his faithful people. You know, we're going to answer his complaint in a moment. But we can learn much from Habakkuk's approach to God in prayer. His approach was that of blunt, brutal honesty with God. Didn't hide 
what he was thinking, didn't hide how he was feeling. In his faith, he was not afraid to speak his own frustration of God's seeming indifference and inactivity. You ever felt that kind of frustration? I love the way it begins. How long have I called for help and you do not hear? You're one of those people who has prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and you're wondering, why is God not hearing my prayer? And it's so easy to shift over just a little bit to start to think that God cannot hear. God is not hearing. God doesn't care. Why are we carrying on with this? This is all pointless, and we begin to drift away from the Lord. But no, that's the wrong answer. The right answer is to go back to God and literally cry out to him in frustration, just like Habakkuk does. John Piper was once asked, what to do if you're angry at God? And his answer was, tell him. Talk to him about it. The omniscient God knows that you are angry anyway. You may as well speak to him about it respectfully and carefully, recognizing that anger is against God, is sin, and that anger will have to be confessed and forgiveness will have to be sought. So speak to God. And you read the Psalms, listen to the way that they address God at times. One of the most startling ones is, Awake, O sleeper. Now, we would never dare to say that God sleeps. But the psalmist, to him in his frustration, it seemed that God was sleeping. And he addressed God in brutal honesty. The omniscient God knows all about our circumstances. But brothers and sisters in Christ, Scripture never presents God's faithful people being dishonest to God in their prayers. In fact, quite the opposite is displayed. The people of God who love the Lord and have that frustration are crying to God in their frustration, expressing brutal honesty before the Lord. In every situation, every one that I could find anyways, as they realize that God has heard them and God is saving them, they realize that God must be trusted even though we don't understand his purposes. See, the mark of faith isn't knowing what's going to happen. The mark of faith is trusting God when we don't know what's going to happen, right? It wouldn't be faith if we knew what was going to happen. And Habakkuk cries out, oh, Lord, how long? I've I've cried to you for help, but you don't hear. I cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at disaster? He is expressing that frustration he has at what's going on. And God's answer to him, as we're going to see in a moment, is Habakkuk, I'm already busy resolving the situation. Let's look at it. The Lord's answer, you won't believe what I'm doing in verses 5 to 11. In verses 5 and 6, the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's complaint is emphatically clear. Look, watch. Be horrified, be frightened, be speechless. His explanation, I'm accomplishing a work in your days that you won't believe when you hear about it. I'm bringing the Chaldeans. That wasn't good news for Habakkuk. Habakkuk certainly knew what that would mean. God has seen the situation in Judah. He is all-knowing. He knows what is happening. He's already busy accomplishing a work to resolve a far greater problem. Brother and sister in Christ, listen. You're crying out to God, banging on the doors of heaven. It seems like there's no answer. You know what God's answer is? I'm already working on it. I've got it covered. I know what I'm doing. 
It wouldn't have been great if he'd said, don't worry, I'm going to pick out every little ungodly Judah and I'm going to deal them all one by one and they'll all be gone. That's the end of the problem. No, he says, I'm going to bring in an army that's going to crush the whole nation. It's, it's like, you know, oh, I don't know if I want to share this story or not, but I will anyway. Uh, I, there was a little fly on my desk the other day and it, it was in the room and our dog goes in and out the same door, and if we don't close the door, the flies come in with her, and it was buzzing around my head and just driving me nuts, which not a long trip, I give you. And, and the fly was there, and I saw this Lego uh, manual, how to put together this car, great big, thick, heavy thing, and I just kind of went whack, and I hit the fly with it. Well, the impact of that book hitting the fly between the, fly, the desk and the book was so great that the fly went from like this big to this big, you know, in a split second. It was just a little overkill. Well, I didn't have to do it quite so hard. And no doubt as, 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 as Habakkuk hears God's words on bringing the Chaldeans, he must have thought, that's a little overkill. That's way beyond what's needed, Lord. And that's exactly what he says. God has seen the situation, Judah. He is all-knowing. He knows what's happening. He's already busy accomplishing a work to resolve a far greater problem, which is the sin of the whole nation. Listen, brothers, brothers and sisters, God is absolutely omniscient. He knows everything that's going on in your life. He knows more about your life than you could possibly know. He's already at work resolving the issues. And just perhaps, in his case and so many of ours, his seeming slowness to action is almost certainly his grace before judgment. He's giving Judah opportunity to repent and turn. But he's raising up the Chaldeans. The Lord goes on to describe them in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. He says, they're grim and impetuous. They're unpredictable. They take possession of what is not theirs. They'll come in and steal everything. In verse 7, they're dreaded, terrifying. They're to be feared. They're a law unto themselves. They answer to nobody. In verse 8, their cavalry is faster than leopards and wolves in the evening, flying with devastating speed and the precision of an eagle, swooping to hit her prey, like, a, like the Nazi Britskrieg, you know? Walked in and crushed nations in days. In verse 9, they come intent on violence to gather captives like sand. When I read that, the first time it went right by it, didn't even notice. Captives like sand. You say, so what? It's sand. What's the big deal? That's the very word that God used to describe the prosperity of his people. In Genesis 32, verse 12, he said to Abraham, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, too great to be numbered. In Isaiah 48, verse 19, he said, Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. What was once God's descriptive promise to Abraham is now God's devastating judgment on his people. The captives will be like sand. In that phrase, we see a glimpse of the brooding anger of God at his people for their persistent sin of idolatry. In verse 10, the Chaldeans mock kings and dignitaries. They laugh at fortresses. They fly like the wind and pass on. But notice what God says in verse 11. His justice is not remotely flawed. He says they won't get away with it. In verse 11, they will be held guilty. 
God who raised the Chaldeans against his own people in his judgment will not let their violence and destruction of his people go unpunished. They will be held guilty by God for their actions against his people. The great hope that the Lord holds out to Habakkuk is that although justice and judgment will fall against Judah, his justice will also extend to those who come against them. Listen. God is not unjust in any of his dealings with any people, nation, or person. Even though we see the enemies of Christianity seeming to increase, prevailing over us in our day, we may be assured of this very thing. God will make it right. God will deal with his enemies. God's faithful remnant people will be vindicated. But the news, God's response to Habakkuk is still devastating, far more than Habakkuk imagined. And so again, he complains in verses 12 to 17. This is the second complaint. Habakkuk begins in verse 12 by declaring God's eternality, his holiness, and his own relationship with God as my God and my holy one. And what he's doing, in effect, is he's subtly reminding God of his covenant relationship with them. Whenever you see in scripture the phrase, you will be my people, or the clause, you'll be my people, and I will be your God, it's a statement of God's covenant relationship, his faithfulness to his people. And by referring to God as my holy one, he's describing God as the one to whom they can and they must come for help. What Habakkuk is saying is, my Lord, my God, my holy one, you're the only one we can come to for help. David wrote, In Psalm 22, verses 3 to 4, and we recognize Psalm 22 as that great psalm that the Lord Jesus spoke on the cross. In verses 3 and 4, he said, You are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Habakkuk saying, Listen. You, are you not from everlasting, Lord, my God, my Holy One? Aren't you the one who delivered us from Egypt way back then? Aren't you the one that delivered us time and time and time again? Why is it now that the Chaldeans are coming in? It's too much. It's too heavy-handed. And in verse 13, Habakkuk questions God's mode of punishment in light of his holy character. How can the Lord, who is the Holy One, the Rock, who is too pure to look at evil, how can he look on such treachery and injustice as the wicked swallowing up the righteous? But yet he does, even being the one who's bringing them. If it wasn't bad enough that ungodly Judahites were surrounded by the godly, it seemed to be, it seemed, emphasize that again, it seemed that God was bringing a far worse injustice. In verses 14 to 17, Habakkuk finishes by describing the Judahites as having been made like fish whom the Chaldeans will bring up with hooks and nets. How was the king of Jerusalem taken away to to Babylon? They put a hook through his nose and led him away. He, He knew it was coming. And after that, they'll joyfully offer sacrifices and incense to their nets. In other words, they'll worship their own strength in which they act. They'll not even recognize and acknowledge God in their victories and successes. As you read Habakkuk's complaint, you can sense the brokenheartedness of this man as he cries to the Lord in brutal honesty. 
His complaint is the age-old question, why does evil seem to go unpunished? Why is God seeming to look favorably on those who deal so treacherously? Why does God seem to be silent when the wicked swallow up the righteous? Listen, God's patience and God's ways are not ours. He who reigns supreme in the heavens from whom no man will escape, he has the right to be patient for he will right every wrong in his own time. Our faith must not be in God who works according to our ideas of time and justice. Our faith must be in God who, though he slay us, yet will we trust him. You remember the three guys standing there? Nebuchadnezzar on one side, great big yawning mouth of a furnace burning extremely hot. What in effect they say is, Nebuchadnezzar, though you slay us, we will not bow down to that thing. We will remain true to God. And brothers and sisters, in the time in which we live, that's the faith we need. The faith that says, I don't care what they say, I will not turn away from the living God. The faith that says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And we easily go, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. We, mm-hmm, amen. Hallelujah. Preach, brother. It's a whole lot different when you can feel the heat of the flames on the side of your face. It's a whole lot different when you're standing in a hospital room and it looks absolutely hopeless. It's a whole lot different when the bottom just drops completely out and you wonder what in the world is going on. And those are the times when we need that brutal, honest faith that comes to God and cries out. And the end of it all, as we'll see next Sunday night, this is what he says. Even if the fig tree does not blossom and there is no fruit on the vines, if the yield of the olive fails and the fields produce no food, if the flock disappears from the fold, if there's no cattle in the stalls, in other words, if I lose everything, if it's all gone, yet I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like deer's feet. He has made me walk in high places. That's Habakkuk's conclusion after all this is said and done at the end of it all. That's where our faith needs to be, beloved. You say, how do we develop a faith like that? Meditating and focusing and thinking and pleading with a living God. That's how we develop it. Our faith must be in a God who, though he slay us, yet will we trust him. That's Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18. Let's bring this back to our own time and context. As we said earlier, parallels between Habakkuk's world and ours are striking. He is a picture of the faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-living believers. Judah pictures the wider, declining, and unfaithful Western church. And the Chaldeans picture the ungodly governments and cultures of our day and their growing intolerance and persecution of the church. We live in a time when ungodly, secular governments and cultures are waging an ever-increasing war against the whole Christian church, Open the newspaper, turn on the TV, look on YouTube. You'll see it's all over the place. Not even, they're losing their shame at it now. It's becoming an open assault on Christianity. At the same time, we live amongst a Western Christian church that is increasingly pagan and ungodly. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be just sitting here. Everybody's got it wrong except us. That's not what I'm trying to say. I think the reality is look around and see what's going on in Christian churches. 
We've traded reverent worship for sparkly entertainment. We've traded gospel of repentance and faith for how to live your best life now. We've traded comprehensive Bible teaching for 20-minute pep talks and discipleship and church discipline for tolerance and acceptance of those things that Scripture clearly condemns as an abomination before God. If we think God won't judge us, what's wrong with us? What Peter said in 1 Peter 4 is what's happening. So what's the answer? To get all wound up? Pardon me if I walk on someone's toes, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I took it out of my notes originally. Forget the petitions and start praying. Forget the hammering on you know, all these conspiracy theories. What the church needs to do more than anything else is preach the gospel, and get on our knees, and begin repenting before the Lord for all the sins that the church has taken on itself and, and allowed casually to carry on in its midst. What we need is to turn back and see that God is a God who is absolutely holy. God is a God who is jealous for his people's holiness and godliness. And the life we live is not up to us. It's up to the God we serve. We're not free like that. We're free in Christ to do as scripture calls us to do. And when we do that, we know joy and peace and fulfillment like nothing else. Amen? Amen. The state of the Western church will surely bring God's judgment. Judgment on his church through the machinations of secular government and culture. Judgment against the whole of his church is what Peter meant in those verses. Go back and read them again. 1 Peter 4, 17-19. You think, no, that, that, that can't be. Come on. God would not allow his people to go through that kind of judgment. Really? He's done it twice already. In Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Read the accounts of what God brought against his people for their repeated turning away from him. Beloved, God will judge all ungodliness and wickedness found in men. He will judge his church for their departure from the biblical faith once delivered. But yet there is hope. There's an absolute hope, and we're going to see it in just a moment. So, His first complaint is, why don't you hear my prayers? And the Lord answers, you won't believe what I am already doing. His second complaint is, our punishment is too great. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk decides to step back and wait and station himself as a watcher, as an observer, to hear the Lord's response to him. And respond he does in chapter 2, verses 2 to 20. The Lord commands Habakkuk to write down the vision, inscribe it clearly so whoever reads the oracle will know to run away. God's words given to him are not merely for Habakkuk alone, but for all who read them. On tablets, that's an interesting little phrase. Why did he choose that one? Do you know who used tablets as a primary means of communication? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't Israel. It was the Chaldeans. Write it down on tablets, Habakkuk. And one day when the Chaldeans are reading through the Hebrew scriptures, they're going to read this. And you know what they're going to see? Judgment is coming, not just on Judah, but on them too. And we'll see in a sec. Verse 3, God has determined that what he is revealing will certainly happen. It is for an appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. It will not fail. Though it delays, it will certainly come and it will not delay long. What's God telling Habakkuk? 
His judgment is coming, and it's coming fast. Brace yourself, Habakkuk. This is what I'm going to do. God's message to Habakkuk could not get more clear. Even though he's made his case that the covenant God of Judah could not tolerate or look on the wicked, swallowing up the righteous, God responds with great emphasis, it's going to happen, Habakkuk. In verse 4, he says, that great verse, Behold, as for the impudent one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one will live by his faith. And all of a sudden, the Lord begins to weave the gospel into his words, and it's beautiful how he does it. We'll see as we go through it. In verses 5 to 19, he expounds and explains that first line, the impudent one or the proud one, their soul is not right within him. He explains the judgment that's coming against the Chaldeans. In verse 5, God's promise to Habakkuk is the Chaldeans who are being brought in by God. They're the arrogant men whom the wine betrays. But in verse 6, God's promise is that all who are conquered by the Chaldeans will take up a song and ridicule against them. Did you catch that? Those whom the Chaldeans conquer and take away as captives, a day is coming when those captives are going to start singing songs of ridicule against the Chaldeans because God is going to judge them. Then he brings in five oracles of woe and doom against them. God will also bring the Chaldeans to their own destruction. Those woes are like funeral dirges or laments. Literally, it's oi in the Hebrew language. It's a groan from the heart. But it's going to be used as a ridicule against the Chaldeans. Ah, woe to you. You did this, and God's going to judge. That's almost the sense of it. God will judge all the wicked. None will escape him. No one. Even the ungodly governments and culture of our day will face God's judgment if they do not repent of sin and turn to God in faith for salvation. So notice very briefly those five woes. In verse 6, woe, judgment to him who increases what is not his. Woe to him who is a thief, who steals. In verse 7, he says, your creditors will rise suddenly and you'll become the plunder and be looted. You'll get your own back. Secondly, in verse 9, woe, judgment to him who makes evil profit for his household. Not honest profit, but evil, ungodly profit gained in disobedience to God's word. He's going to judge it. Thirdly, in verse 12, woe, judgment to him who builds a city with bloodshed and violence. Literally, in verse 13, it will go up in smoke and fire. It will burn and it will not stand. The works and the buildings of the ungodly will all burn in God's judgment. All that work to amass all that wealth in an ungodly, dishonest, corrupt way, God's going to burn it to the ground. You say, well, there's lots of places in our world where that happens and it's not burned to the ground. God's patient. But a day to come, God will bring that judgment. It's coming. But notice what he says in verse 14, and we have a hint of the gospel shining through. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the whole earth. In other words, all the works of the wicked burn to the ground. But the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill everything. It will permeate every place like water covering the seas. It's more than just a theoretical knowledge of God that so many Judahites had. 
and sad to say so many professing Christians today have. This is so much more than that. This is an intimate encounter with the living God entered by God's grace through faith in him that brings true righteousness and godly living. In the midst of pronouncing judgment on the Chaldeans, God pauses for a moment to promise the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And Paul adds in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, it will be found in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is beginning to shine through. Don't you love the way God works? He's hammering away at the Chaldeans and he's just sliding the gospel in and it starts to increase. There is grace before judgment. There is grace for salvation before it comes. That's the message. Fourthly, in verse 15, Woe, judgment to him who makes his neighbor drink wine for the purposes of sexual immorality and debauchery. And God says, You'll be filled with disgrace rather than honor. God will bring utter disgrace and shame upon them. Fifthly, in verse 19, Woe, judgment to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! Woe to those who practice idolatry. And now God lumps both the ungodly Judahites who are practicing idolatry and the Chaldeans together and anybody else who worships anything other than the living God and says, God's going to crush you. And he finishes off. This is God's last word to Habakkuk in the book in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And that's exactly what it will be like, too. The last great day of judgment. And God gathers all the nations of all the peoples of all times together before him and separates the sheep from the goats. Not one person will say, I was framed. No, 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 no. I got circumstances that were supporting my sin here. You know, you need to talk to my lawyer. We can get a good deal going. None of that will happen. Every mouth will be shut. And every person will look they will see the glory of God, an absolutely holy, just, and righteous God. But a God who is also absolutely gracious and kind and good. You go back to the other part of verse 4, that great line that, that's, you put those, that one verse together, it's the message of the whole Bible. But as for the proud or the haughty or the impudent one, his soul is not right within him. The word right could be not righteous within him. But the righteous one will live by his faith. That's the message of the gospel. In fact, Paul quotes it and the main points of Romans, that's what he's using. That's his foundation text in Romans 1, 16 and 17. We'll see it in a second. The righteous who trust the Lord will live. God who is speaking means that all those who are truly righteous will live by faith in God. They will live rather than facing the judgment of God. And this is the gospel. The almighty, most holy, only living and true God who created all things. He created us with a purpose to glorify him as his living representatives And in glorifying him, he promised that we would know the greatest joy and fulfillment that any human being can ever possibly know. You won't find it in sin. You will only find it in obedience to God. But the problem is we've all disobeyed God's commands, which he gave us in his word and he wrote in our conscience. And that disobedience is what the Bible calls sin. 
We've rebelled against the God who created us. We've failed to meet the standard set by him, which is perfect obedience. We've crossed the line. We've broken all his commands. You say, no, 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 no. I know the commands. There's a few I have not broken. Oh, yeah, but the Bible says if you've broken one, then you've broken them all. So you don't get off on that one. We all stand guilty under the judgment of God in Habakkuk 2, verses 6 to 19. We're in there somewhere. We all face eternal death in hell for disobedience to God. But God, but God, (laughs) two of the greatest words ever put together in the English language. But God in magnificent grace has provided a means to save us from his judgment. He sent his one and only son to die in our place to take the judgment of God that we deserved for us to pay the penalty for our sin. This is what the Bible says. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, the Bible says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Just so there's no misunderstanding, his death could cover the sins of all the Chaldeans, too. His death was sufficient to pay the penalty for all the sin of every Nazi that raised their boot against the Jews. Don't kid yourself into thinking that God draws lines and says, well, not them, not them. His death was sufficient to pay for it all. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In John three sixteen to 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He calls all mankind, every one of us, to believe, to trust in him, to keep his promises. In other words, we trust God to keep his promises. He calls all mankind to turn to God, to live in obedience to him. And in response to our faith, God declares us righteous in my sight. And Habakkuk 2.4 works, the righteous one, the one who has been declared righteous by God, will by his or her faith live. The proud who are trusting in themselves, their soul is not right. They are unrighteous and they will face God's judgment. But those who are trusting and living by faith in God are declared righteous. We cannot earn this righteousness. You think, all the good works I do, surely God will notice them. They're like filthy rags in God's eyes. We can't earn this righteousness by good works or good deeds, by somehow doing enough good to outweigh the bad. The bad we do, one single sin deserves God's judgment of death. So it doesn't matter if you do a thousand, a million, a hundred billion good works on the other side of it. You still deserve death. You can't make it up. The righteousness of God is a gift by his grace through faith. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, without any hesitation, there is no, no one who does good. No, not one. There's none who seeks for God. Make no mistake about it, we cannot come to God on our own. 
We come to God because God in his grace reaches down and opens the eyes of our hearts to believe, to understand the gospel and draws us and brings us to himself in grace. If I could come to God on my own, that wouldn't be grace. It strips grace down and makes it a law. I've come, you must save. God says, you can't come, but I'll turn you and I'll bring you to myself and you'll see the riches of grace as I bring you. The Bible says, Paul quotes in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it's written, the righteous man shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Paul means that anyone and everyone who is convinced that God will keep his promises. How do we get convinced? Because it's a good logical argument. It's a good legal argument. Paul's a great writer. Jesus was a great preacher. He was, but that's not how we're convinced. God opens the eyes of our hearts to see it. The glory of God in the face of Christ is shone into our hearts and we recognize it. Even here in Habakkuk, in the midst of all this judgment, you see the glory of God in the face of Christ when he says, the righteous one will live by his faith. It's all pointing forward to Jesus. Messages found all through the Bible. This isn't just a New Testament creation. You go right back to Genesis. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Paul uses that statement and that truth in Romans 4 to develop his whole gospel and the, uh, theology. Romans 4, verses 20 to 22, the Bible says, With respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was going to do. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. We haven't missed that. What God had promised, he was able also to do. What's the difference? Do you realize that you go through all the promises of the Old Testament and work your way through Hebrews 11? Do you know how many of those old saints saw the actual fruition of those promises? Not many. So the point is that we believe that God is able to do what he's promised. Is God going to keep his promises? Yes. Will we see Jesus come back in our day? I sure hope so. Is he able to come back in my day? Yes. Is he coming back? Yes. Will I see it in my day? I don't know. But I'm convinced he's going to keep his promise. Absolutely convinced. Unshakable conviction on that one. God is able to keep his promises. Galatians 2 verse 16, Paul again writes, Nevertheless, knowing that a man or a woman is not declared righteous by the works of a law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. If you could do enough good to make you righteous in God's sight, you would be God, but you're not and you can't. And you may as well give up trying because God in grace has provided the Lord Jesus Christ for you. His perfect life of sinless obedience, his perfect righteousness is given as a gift. That's grace. It ought to blow us away 
I said it before, I'll say it again. Our problem is our view of God is so small. We ought to recognize what God has done in in imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. Never mind you lot, me. I'll look at my life, I'll look at the sinfulness of my own heart, and I think, why would God do that? And I have to go, grace. That's the only reason. Just grace. So the question at the end of the day, the end of the sermon, end of our time together, is will you trust in God for your salvation from the wrath of God that is surely coming? The little book of Habakkuk makes it so plain. God will judge all the wickedness of mankind. No one will escape. But in God, but God in grace has provided a way of salvation from that judgment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, then we're actually going to sing that little song. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, again, we just stand back in awe and wonder and amazement. Father, I know my own sin. I know the things that I did. And tragically, I don't know the things that I will still yet do. Father, when I stop and I look and recognize that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed, applied to my account... Me who who never sought for you, never did one ounce of good. In grace, in grace, you sent Jesus to be my Savior. But oh, how great was the grace of God that he was sent. And his death was sufficient for every single person who would ever be conceived. But, Father, we recognize also the great truths of the Scripture, sufficient for all, but effective for those who will believe. Father, I cry out to you this morning. Standing in this room, I'm convinced there are some who do not know Jesus as Savior. So I plead with you, O Lord my God, open their eyes, draw them in, Let them see the glory of God, your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and in repentance of sin and faith to believe and be saved. Father, I pray for a great work in our church. Lord God, as the gospel focus has just risen up in my mind this morning, I also know, Lord, that there are some in this church, some in this room, this very room, that are wrestling and struggling so much with what they see going on in the governments and the culture of our day. Father, I cry out to you, I plead with you, O God, that you would shift their gaze away from that and set it firmly and fixed upon Jesus to recognize like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though the governments of our day slay us, yet we will trust him. We will not turn away. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that that faith that we have would greatly be increased. 
Father, I ask you for a great work in this church, in all of us, starting with the eldership and right down to the bottom. Lord, everyone. Father, please, please, Lord, save those who don't believe. Encourage those who are discouraged. Comfort those, O oh God, who are afflicted. Father, for those who are going on in blind oblivion to the reality of their situation before you, open their eyes that they might see. Lord, we ask you all these things, and we plead with you, O oh God, for your help. Praying in Jesus' name, amen.